without Christ, uh, they don't know where to go. Uh, they, they, they don't have Christ, and they don't have the Lord, and so oftentimes they turn to something maybe foreign to put in their body, you know, something to kind of help them, medication or, or uh, maybe alcohol or maybe an extramarital affair or something, you know, to kind of get them going again. So where do we go? Well, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 29, the Bible says, He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Have you ever noticed that God, sometimes his strength doesn't kick in until ours is gone? You know, we want it sooner than that. We want God to come on. I'm, I'm running out of gas here. I'm, 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 I'm getting low here spiritually. And the Lord sometimes lets us get to the bottom of our rope before he begins uh, his work in our life. He says in verse 30, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He talks here about our strength being renewed. Well, How does that happen? How does God renew us day by day? We know that he can. We know that he desires to. He doesn't want us to run on empty. He doesn't want us to be faint. He doesn't want us to uh, run out of, of our strength and our ability to serve him. So how does he renew us? Or what can we do uh, to uh, help that situation? I believe today I'd just like to give you some, some personal disciplines that can help the Lord renew your strength on a daily basis. First of all, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you some words. They all start with the letter R, so maybe that'll help you to remember. And the first one is the word remember. Remember. And here's what you ought to remember. Remember, God loves us for who we are, not what we do. Now, people will love you for what you do, right? People say, hey, that was a, that was a great job. Boy, that was, thanks for keeping the nursery today. You're a blessing. Or uh, thanks for singing that special number. That was beautiful. Or thanks for preaching that sermon. Or thanks for cleaning your room, guys. That was awesome. You know, people love you for what you do. But God loves us for who we are. You know that God loved us while we were yet sinners? Isn't that amazing? I mean, God loved us when we were unlovable. God loved us when we weren't worthy of his love. And yet, uh, uh, God manifested his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Um, God loves us for who we are. And I'm glad that that love never changes. It never wavers. The Bible says in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, Yea, I've loved thee with an everlasting love. God's love is unconditional. Now, He's pleased if I read my Bible today, but if I forget, he still loves me. He's pleased if I'm in church today, but he would love me even if I didn't show up, right? Because his love doesn't change. His love is unconditional. And I'm thankful for that love that God has for us as an individual. He loves us for who we are, not what we do. See, what we do, that's going to fluctuate. Some days we'll do good. Some days we'll be a blessing. Some days we'll help somebody else, and they'll be very appreciative of it. But God's love never changes, regardless of our situation. So God loves us for who we are, not what we do. Remember, second word is the word refuel. Refuel. You have to take in every day as much as you give out. Now, that's pretty elementary, isn't it? But you can't keep going without a spiritual refueling. Whenever I drive I-70 across the country, and I, I seem to make that trip about six times a year, and uh, whenever I go up the 15 and I get on I-70 there, just uh, uh, north of Las Vegas, about two hours, I get up there at I-70 and I start going east. I always get off at the Richfield exit, a little town called Richfield, a little Mormon town. And I always get off there, and I go to the Flying J truck stop every time. Never fails. doesn't matter how much fuel I have in my gas tank. I get off there, and I go to the Flying J truck stop, and I fill up my tank. You know why? Because for the next 106 miles, there's no gas. And the speed limit's 80 miles an hour, which is great. But people don't drive 80. They drive 100. So if you broke down, they're not stopping. They don't even see you, right? I mean, 
They're just flying through that corridor there. And there is nothing out there. There are some exits off the highway there where you can get off, but you can't get back on. I don't know why they put an exit there that you can't get back on the freeway, but there are places there that are just desolate. There's nothing out there. So I always make sure, no matter how much fuel I have, to refuel at that spot because there's a long way ahead. You know, in our lives, we have to put in what goes out. It's an interesting story in in the Gospels about a woman who had an issue of blood. You might remember this woman. She had suffered for 38 years with this problem. And the Bible said she had spent all that she had, but she was nothing better but rather grew worse. So here's this woman who has this, this issue of blood. I'm sorry, 12 years. Thinking of the guy at the Pool of Bethesda. He was 38 years. This woman was sick for 12 years, had spent everything she had, been to every doctor she knew, and nothing was, was making a difference. One day she hears of Jesus. He's coming to town. And she thought, if I could but touch his clothes, I should be whole. Remember the story? Now, I can kind of see this little frail woman. I, I kind of picture her as very thin, probably dressed in rags. I mean, she had spent everything she had to get better, to improve her health. But for 12 years, nothing had worked. So here's this woman that's really at the point of death. And she sees this crowd and Jesus in it. And she says, if I can just get close enough to reach out and touch his clothes, I could be whole. And so she slithers through that crowd, perhaps bumping into people as she goes to try to get close enough. And finally, she gets there and and just touches his garment. And immediately, Jesus stops. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples said, Lord, Thou seest the multitudes thronging thee, and seest thou who touched thee? In other words, Lord, we're, we're trying to hold them back. But they keep pressing, they keep coming. Uh, what do you mean, who touched you? People are bumping into you all the time. But Jesus, looking about to see her that had done this thing, and the woman, she was already healed, knowing what was done in her body, fell at his feet and told him all the truth. And Jesus said, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Now, there's one little part in that story I skipped. The Bible says when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, the Bible says virtue went out of him. Jesus, knowing that virtue had gone out of him, said, who touched me? Now, I don't know all that that entails, because I've never done a miracle, right? (laughs) Only God can do miracles. So I, I don't know what that means, virtue went out of him. But obviously, I think we could assume that the power of God went out of him and performed this miracle, right? But something went out of him. Now, what I can associate with is sometimes when we serve, something goes out of us. You can't always put your finger on it. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's a mental drainage. But when we serve others, when we serve in ministry, there's going to be something going out of us. Paul said, I'll very gladly spend and be spent for you, right? So there was a spending of his life for others. So when we are faithful to God, when we're trying to raise our family and we're trying to do what's right and be in church and go to soul wedding and all these different things that we're supposed to do, there's some things that are going to go out of us. We've got to make sure that we refill, that we refuel our life And I don't know what that means for you. Sometimes it means sitting down and reading God's Word. Sometimes we refuel as we come to church and we hear the Word of God preached and we're around other Christians and they encourage us and they strengthen us and the iron sharpens iron and so on. Sometimes it might mean a nap, right? I mean, physically, we're just exhausted. And it's not pleasing to God to wear our temple out. Um, Sometimes just we need to rest. We need to take some time off. I saw a T-shirt uh, the other day and, and uh, said, there's a nap for that. Instead of an app, there's a nap for that. I like that. You know, I got enough apps. I sometimes need a nap, right? And sometimes we just need rest. Sometimes when there's a, when there's a mental stress, there's a, maybe an emotional stress, that, that refueling might be exercise. It might be going out and just physically hitting it for a while. In other words, I don't know what it might be, but we've got to refuel Back into our life, that which has gone out. So we got to remember, we got to refuel. Thirdly, is the word review. Review. 
Now, there's three areas to review on a daily basis. We need to review our priorities. We need to review the peripheral. If you can spell that, come and show me afterwards. I'll give you, I'll give you a dollar. <laughs> and we need to review the pollution. Review the, 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 um, review the priorities. Review the peripheral. Review the pollution. Every day you need to look at your life and say, okay, what's my priority? Now, to me, priorities are something God's given us. For example, I'm a Christian, right? God saved me. So I have some Christian priorities. I need to read my Bible. I need to pray. I, 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 need, to, um, I need to have that relationship with God. That's a priority. If I get too busy for that, I'm going to start to suffer. I'm going to start to weaken. I'm going to start to, you know, wear out. So I, I've got to keep my relationship with God. I'm a husband. Okay, so my marriage demands a priority. I'm a father. So my parenting, my parenting has to be a priority. Um, I, I am a staff member at the church. I, 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 I work at the church, right? I, I have an employer. I, I uh, get a paycheck for things that I do, right? So, so I've got a priority there. I've got to prioritize my job or, in my case, my ministry. You've got to look at those things that God has placed in your life. And God has put a priority on those things. Then review the peripheral. Now, the peripheral are things that are not necessarily wrong. They're not necessarily sinful. But they get in the way of the priorities. And it's easy to live your whole day for the peripheral. And you get so involved in the peripheral that you don't get the priorities done. Uh if you're not careful, you can pull up your computer in the morning, your, your internet or whatever, and all of a sudden stuff starts popping. You're saying, oh, wow, look what happened last night in the Ukraine. And, you know, you go there. And then, hey, you know, I need to check out the scores here from yesterday. And, and pretty soon you've spent a couple hours on the internet. Now, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't, you didn't do anything foolish. You didn't do anything sinful in doing that. But, but you let your priorities get away from you because you... You got stuck on the peripheral. Sometimes somebody can give us a call, and before we know it, we've talked for an hour about practically nothing, right? And really didn't accomplish much. Paul said, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be burned of the power of any. Now, he's not talking about sinful things there. Certainly, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he's not talking about, you know, getting sidetracked with sin, He's just getting, he's getting sidetracked with things that aren't pleasing to the Lord, that aren't the priority. We've got to keep those priorities right and the peripheral to the side. I have some books in my library that I would like to read. Usually I have eight or nine stacked up that somebody's given me or I've bought things that I want to read, but I don't have to read them today. Now, they may become a priority at some point. I mean, if I'm teaching a class in something, I bought a book to study and to prepare for that class. Well, eventually that's going to become a priority, but it may not be a priority today, right? And so other things may be more important to help today. Someone may have a need. Someone may need counsel. Someone may need to, you know, get saved or whatever. There may be some priorities. I can leave those peripheral things aside. And then, of course, we need to review the pollution. And the pollution is anything that would be wrong, things that would get into our lives that would obviously hurt our life in some way. The Bible says, arise ye and depart. This is not your rest. It's polluted, and it'll destroy you with a sore destruction. The pollution of this world, the, the sin in this world, boy, there's a lot of it out there that we can easily get attracted to. We can easily stray after if we're not careful. God says, review that every day in your life. Keep that pollution out. Purge your life of these things so that you can be a vessel unto honor, sanctified meat for the master's use. So review, review. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day for the night cometh when no man can work. We only have so much time in this life and we all get the same amount. Isn't that amazing? We all get exactly 168 hours every week. We get 24 hours in a day. We get 60 uh, seconds in a minute. You know, we all get the same amount of time. So what we do with that time is going to be important. Solomon said, whatsoever thy hand findest to do, 
do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. And so we need to redeem the time. So review. All right. Number four. Fourth word is the word reconcile. Reconcile. There's two areas to reconcile. Reconcile with people swiftly. Have you noticed that a lot of problems involve people? <laughs> it's, not, it's not ideas that are the problem. It's usually people that are the problem. Uh, most problems revolve around a person. And so God gives us instruction that when these problems come with another person, we need to deal with that swiftly. I don't know if you're like me or not. I don't like confrontation. I, I, I just don't. I don't, I don't particularly like to confront someone that's wrong. Now, as a policeman, I'm sure that's your job, right? Somebody's speeding, so you confront them. You pull them over, you confront them, right? I mean, that's a job for somebody, but I don't like to do it. Um, I had two sets of parents come in my office this week, and I knew that they weren't happy. Uh, they had driven a long ways just to meet with me, and they had some complaints, okay, I hate those kind of meetings. Now, fortunately, both went very well, and uh, I think we resolved the issues. And uh, but but I don't like confrontation. My my thought is, if we just give it some time, it'll go away. That's the way I th- I look at problems. You know, they'll, they'll go away. You know, time heals all wounds, right? <laughs> Boy, that's the biggest lie I think that ever ever ta- taught. Taught. Uh, it usually doesn't. So we have to sometimes confront. Well, when does Jesus tell us to do that? He says in Matthew five. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way. So in other words, the time to deal with a people problem is right away. Don't let it linger. Uh, young people, if you get at odds with your parents, boy, go and, go and get that taken care of. Don't, don't live with a bitterness or rebellion toward your parents. Mom and dads, don't, don't live and don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Right? We may not be able to solve every problem today before the sun goes down, but we at least need to confront it. We at least need to say, you know, we need to talk about this, or we need to get some counsel about this, or we need to pray about this. We at least need to attack that problem. Deal with people swiftly, because people problems zap you of your energy. When things aren't right between you and God, when, people, when things aren't right between you and others, it just, it just zaps you of that which you're supposed to do. It's all you can think about is that other person. So uh, uh, deal with people swiftly. And then secondly, deal with problems scripturally. Deal with people swiftly. Deal with problems scripturally. You know, we will wear ourselves out trying to handle problems on our own. We need to look for a solution in the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. In other words, to the law, the first five books of the Bible, to the testimony of the prophets, Isaiah said, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. So if we're trying to solve our problems without the Bible, we're going to probably make it worse. In other words, we need to use God's word to solve a problem. I don't know about you, sometimes you you face problems, and of course, like I said, they're usually uh, involving people, and you think to yourself, okay, if I can get him to agree about this, and if if he'll agree to that, then she'll agree to this, and and then then I'll, you know, get her to do that, you know, and you start start trying to manipulate or manage the situation, and you wear yourself out. But we need to just simply say, okay, what's the biblical solution? Does somebody need to repent here of something wrong? Does someone need to confess a sin here? Does someone need to forgive? Does someone need to restore? Does someone need to reconcile here? What is it that's needed from the Word of God? When you you attack problems from a biblical base, then whether they find a solution or not is on them. In other words, here's what the Bible says. Here's what God says. Now you must act on that. Uh, solve those problems right away and use the Word of God to do so. Reconcile. I was in a church years ago and 
And uh, one night, the pastor, uh, I think it was Monday night, he, he said, Brother Gutch, uh, there's a gentleman here tonight, and after the service, he'd like to talk to you. I said, Pastor, I don't, I don't counsel your members. That's not why I came. I'm not, I'm not a counselor of your, your church members. He said, no. He said, this guy, something's, something's bugging him. And, and he said, uh, he, won't, he, won't, he hasn't shared it with me, but he said he'd like to talk to you, and I, I think you could be a help to him. I said, well, Pastor, I'd really rather not. Why don't you come in with us? He said, no. He said, he wants to talk to you. And uh, so I, I kind of forgot about it, went and preached. And quite frankly, after the service, I didn't give it a second thought. But after most of the people left, the pastor said, Brother Gedge, that gentleman's in my office. Why don't you just go on in and, and try to help him? Oh, yeah, that's right. So I go in the office, and the pastor had kind of a small couch in front of his desk and uh, probably room for a couple people to sit. And he was sitting on one end of that couch and looked kind of down and defeated and he didn't look angry, that's for sure. And so I went in and I sat down and I said, sir, how can I help you? He said, Brother Gadge, uh, he said, I, um, I've been married about three years. And uh, he says, um, I, I have only been saved for about three months. And uh, he said, before I got saved, I, I had an affair. And he said, I've, I've never told anybody. My wife doesn't know. And he said, it's just eating me alive. He said, this week, the preaching, he said, I'm just, I'm just feeling convicted that, that I, need to, I need to tell my wife, come clean about this. But he said, Brother Gatch, I know her. And, and she will leave me if I tell her. Now I'm listening, I'm thinking, where's the pastor? Man, I'm an evangelist. I don't deal with these things, you know. I'm thinking, where's the pastor? And uh, so he's, you know, obviously very broken up about this. And I said, well, sir, um, if the Holy Spirit is telling you to do something, you got to do it. I mean, you're not going to win that argument. If he's saying you need to tell her, then, then you need to tell her. And and the truth is, God can be working in her heart and prepare for the message. You may think she's going to respond a certain way, but if we pray, give it to the Lord, then, then he can move in her heart to be forgiving or whatever. And we just, we just need to, to pray about that, and we need to find the right time. In other words, you know, don't just blurt it out. Just pray and, and, and ask the Lord when would be the right time to have this discussion and pray that God will prepare her heart. Really, what I was saying was wait till after the revival. You know, let me get out of town and then and then tell her. It's kind of what I was saying uh, in a roundabout way. And I talked to him for about 45 minutes, and and uh, and he he agreed that he needed to tell her and pray about the timing and all that kind of thing. And and we had a word of prayer, and he went out. Well, the next night I come into the church, and the pastor said, "Brother Gatch, that that gentleman you talked to last night, his wife wants to see you after the service." I thought, "Oh no." He told her. I told him to wait. You know, and he told her, and now she's mad and, and wants me to sanction a divorce, you know, or something. And I'm thinking, oh, man, what did I get myself into? Well, I, I tried to avoid the situation after the service, but the pastor said, hey, that lady's in my office. You need to go talk to her. So I go in there, and she's sitting in the same spot he was the night before. And I could tell she was not angry. I could tell she was just kind of defeated as well. And and so I went and sat down thinking that she knew about her husband and where do I go from here? And I said, ma'am, how can I help you? She said, Brother Gadge, I've been married about three years. And she said, uh, I've only been saved about three months. And she said, um, I, I, I've never told anybody. But she said, when I was a teenager, I had an abortion. She said, my parents don't know about it. My, my husband doesn't know about it. She said, I, I never told anybody. And she said, this week the preaching's just gotten to me. And she said, I know I need to tell my husband about this. But she said, Brother Gedge, I know him. If I tell him this, he will divorce me. I'm thinking, what in the world? Here's her husband, had an affair. If he tells her, she's going to leave him. 
She's had an abortion as a teenager. If she tells him he's going to divorce, I'm thinking, where's the pastor? <laughs> right? So I start through the same counseling. I go through the same thing again. You know, well, you know, if, if God's telling you, you need to tell him, and God will prepare his heart, and we just need to find the right time, you know, pray. God will give you the right timing of this after the revival. You know, I didn't say that, but after a few days. And, and went through it all again, 45 minutes, had a word of prayer, she left. So Wednesday night, I walk in the church, and the pastor says, Brother Gatch, that, uh, that man you dealt with Monday night and the, his wife Tuesday night, uh, they want to see you together after the service. Oh, man, I'm thinking they want to tell each other with me there. No, there's no way. I'm not playing referee tonight. There's no way. I'm getting out of here uh, before they can catch me. And so as soon as the service is over, I shook the hands. I got out of there. But they caught me. Before I got to my car, the pastor said, Brother Gatch, that couple's in my office. I went back in. They're sitting on the couch, very close to each other. He's got his arm around me. And as I got up next to him, they're holding hands, and he's got his arm around So I went around behind the desk, and I, I sat down. And I said, let's pray. Dear Lord. And I began to pray. And I prayed for everything I could think of. I mean, I prayed for about 10 minutes. I prayed for all the missionaries in the world. I mean, I, I prayed for everything. Because I did not want to deal with this thing. And I prayed for a while, and finally I said amen. And when I did, they're laughing. They're chuckling. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here? And the man, he, through, his, through his laughter, he said, Brother Gadge, we know you don't want to talk to us. Well, I didn't know it was that obvious, you know. <laughs> we know this is hard for you. But he said, we, we just want you to know that last night, he said, I, I, I told her. And she said, and I told him. And then he said, and we forgave each other. And I said, get out of here. <laughs> right? But see, when you confront people swiftly, when you deal with it scripturally, God is at work in that situation. When he's showing you, hey, here's the problem. Here's what needs to be done. When you follow that lead, then that can be reconciled, you see, in God's way. And it's a wonderful thing when God begins to work in the hearts of people that you need to confront and need to, need to help. And so uh, reconcile. Then uh, number five, uh, the word remain. Remain. A couple areas here. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It takes your whole life to live your life. And so it, it takes a while. And we got to realize that we're in this for the long haul. So we need to determine, I'm going to remain. I'm, I'm going to remain faithful. The Bible says we're to run with patience the race that's set before us. That word patience there in Hebrews 12.1 has the connotation of endurance. In other words, this isn't a sprint. You've got a long way to go. And so run with patience. Run so that you can endure all the way to the end. So... In what areas should we remain? Well, first of all, remain committed. Remain committed. The devil's going to try to get you to lose your focus on God. He's going to try to get you to take a detour. Boy, he's got all kinds of detours. He's got all kinds of distractions. So we need to remain committed. Remember, the Bible says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So whatever, is God, whatever God has put in your life, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your church, whether it's your friends, whatever it is, remain faithful to that. Don't change courses quickly. Remain committed to what God has in your life. The alternative to God's will is not a pretty picture. You want to remain committed to God's will in your life. Remain committed. Secondly, remain content. Remain content. This is a discontented age, isn't it? I mean, nobody's happy with anything. Uh, we're not happy with our job. We're not happy with our church. We're not happy with our spouse. We're not happy with, you know, the weather. We're not happy with our looks. We're not happy with anything. And we're discontent. And we live in that kind of an age that's always seeking something else. We're not content. It reminds me of the story of the man that was stranded on an island for 12 years. Did you hear about this guy? He's on this island all by himself for 12 years. And he tried to be discovered. Every time he'd hear a plane, he'd, he'd run out on the beach, wave his arms, but nobody ever saw him. 
he'd, he'd start fires and he'd send smoke up in the air, think of somebody would see it and come and get him. But for 12 years, stranded on this island. Finally, one day, he heard a plane going over, so he did his usual thing. He ran out there and waved his arms, and the pilot saw him. And so the pilot radioed back to the airport, hey, there's this guy on this island. You need to send a helicopter or something out there to get him. So they did. And the chopper was landing, and the man was ecstatic. He was, he was finally going to be rescued. And so he runs out there, and when the, when the chopper pilot got out of the, out of the plane, they embraced him. He gave him a big bear hug and thanked him for coming to get him. And the pilot said, hey, no problem. Get your stuff. Get the others. Let's get you out of here. He goes, others? There are no others. I'm the only one here. I've been over this entire island, every square inch, but I'm the only person here. And the chopper pilot, he said, really? He said, well, if you're the only one here, why are there three huts? And the guy said, well, the first hut, that, that, that's where I live. That's my house. Okay, well, what's the second one? He said, well, that's my church. That's where I go to church. The pilot was pretty impressed. He said, what's the third one? He said, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> And, you know, some of us would be discontent with the church if we were the only one in it, right? It's just our nature. It's our nature to want something different. It's our nature to want something new, something, something different. We want change. But God says we must be content. Remember what he says? Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world. Certainly we can carry nothing out. So having then food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Uh, so contentment. And by the way, that doesn't come attached to salvation. When you get saved, you don't just automatically become content. Because Paul said in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Notice you have to learn that. It doesn't come natural. It's not easy. You have to learn it. But Paul had learned that in whatever state he was in, now you think about that statement, because Paul was in some pretty good states at times. I mean, he was preaching, people were getting saved. He was building a church. He was, he was seeing families reunited. He, everywhere he went, the gospel was having effect. But Paul spent some time in jail. And Paul was stoned and left for dead. And Paul suffered shipwreck and a night and day in the deep. And, and Paul, you read 2 Corinthians 11, and boy, he, he went through a lot of situations that it would have been easy to check out. But he said, I've learned in every situation to be content. Remember, contentment is not related to our circumstances. Contentment is related to our resources in Christ. Circumstances change every day. That's not what will bring you contentment. In fact, that oftentimes brings discontentment. But our contentment comes from God who says, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So remain committed, remain content, and then thirdly, remain compassionate. Again, we live in a time where you can get really crusty. You can get really calloused. It's like, man, I've seen it all before. And if you're not careful, you can lose your sensitivity to the things of God. This world can desensitize us. It can make us hard. And the Israelites went through that. They, the Bible says they had a, a calloused heart. They had foreskins over, the, over their heart, remember? And, and God says, break up your fallow ground. Take away the foreskins off your heart. In other words, we've got to keep ourselves compassionate. Don't, don't allow your, your compassion uh, to, 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 to leave. Remain compassionate about the things of God. Remain compassionate toward others who have a need. The love of Christ constraineth us. Um, your love for Christ will keep you in love with your family. Your love for Christ will keep you in love with your church. Your love for Christ will keep you in love with the ministry. There was a diamond dealer in New York City named Harry Winston. Mr. Winston was a very wealthy man and dealt with some of the world's uh, most famous diamonds. And he'd heard about a, a similar merchant over in... Uh, in Denmark, a Dutch merchant who had a diamond store over there. And, and this particular merchant over the Atlantic was looking for a particular rare diamond, and Winston thought he had it. 
he had read about this fellow's search for this particular diamond, and Winston thought he had it. So he wired the fellow and said, hey, I think I have what you're looking for. Why don't you fly over and see it? Well, the Dutch merchant was very excited that perhaps this kind of quest for this lifetime diamond had been found, and so he got on a plane, flew over to America, and, and walked into that store one morning. Well, Mr. Winston assigned a salesman to show it to him. The salesman went to the back and got the box that it was locked in, brought it out to the counter, had the velvet uh, 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 cloth there on the glass counter, turned on the special light, you know, and took the diamond out and placed it on the cloth and turned the light just exactly on it. And The salesman began to talk about all the technical features of this marvelous stone. The Dutch merchant, he listened for a few minutes and finally put up his hand and said, no, it's not what I'm looking for, and turned to leave. Well, Mr. Winston had been observing this from a distance, and he intercepted the man at the door. He said, sir, you, you spent a lot of money to come over here, and you flew a long ways. Do you mind if I show you that diamond again? Well, Okay. So Winston went over to the counter and reopened the box, took the diamond back out, placed it on the velvet, and turned on the light. But this time, instead of explaining all of its technical features, Winston shared his own general admiration for this beautiful stone. Within a few seconds, the Dutch merchant changed his mind and bought the stone. As he was waiting for it to be packaged, he looked at Harry Winston and he said, Now, why did I buy that from you? I had no trouble saying no to your salesman. Why did I buy it from you? Winston said, My salesman's a good man. He, uh, he, he knows a lot about diamonds. In fact, he knows more about diamonds than I do. But I would pay him three times what I pay him now if I could put something into him that I have and he lacks. He said, you see, my salesman knows diamonds, but I love them. Most of your family, friends, co-workers, they know you go to church. And they know you know about God. But what makes the difference It's that love, that genuine love for Christ that makes that difference. Don't lose your compassion. So remain. And then one last word, the word rejoice. The word rejoice. Now, do I have about five minutes? 1025? Oh, I got 10. So you know the story. Uh, <laughs> rejoice. Here's what I want you to rejoice in. Rejoice in your fruitfulness. Rejoice in your faithfulness, not your fruitfulness. Rejoice in your faithfulness, not in your fruitfulness. Can I tell you a secret? You'll never be as fruitful as you want to be. You'll never see all the results you want to see. But you can pillow your head every night knowing you were faithful. You notice you never get all your things on the to-do list done. You never get to the end of the day and say, man, I am all caught up. And if you are, there'll be something on there before you go to bed, right? You're never as fruitful as you want to be. But you can always be faithful. And you know what? When it's all over, that's all that's going to matter. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Several years ago now, I was sitting in my, well, I was sitting in Portland, Oregon in a hotel and uh, got a phone call. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was from Dr. Rasmussen at the college. And I could immediately tell from his tone of voice that something had happened. And he said, Brother Gadge, Arthur Hanafy just passed away. Well, Arthur was a, was a good friend. He was 54 years old. Arthur worked for American Airlines. And he was single. He was 54, as I said. Well, I should say he was probably, yeah, he's 54 and and uh, he had been single all his life and never married. Was from the Bronx in New York, and he was Irish Catholic. 
and got saved, and, and he just became one of these people that was very outspoken for the Lord. He just didn't care what you thought of him. He just would witness and tell you about God no matter who you were. First time I met Arthur Hanafy, it was when I first arrived at West Coast, I flew in from a meeting, and, and they, they said, Arthur, go pick up Brother Getch at the airport. And I'd never met this guy. He picks me up. We get in his car. We're driving back to Lancaster, and his phone rang. He answers his phone. He says, yeah, who is it? I told you, if you don't get saved, you're going to hell. You better get saved now, or you're going to fry one day in that place called hell. He's just going off on this guy. I'm thinking, what in the world? When he hung up, I said, who was that? He said, oh, some Catholic priest I met the other day told him he got to get saved. I'm thinking, what in the world? That was Arthur Hannafy. That's the way he dealt with people. But Arthur had a heart that was as big as this room. I mean, he would do anything for anybody. He was just gruff, though. Never got married. There was a reason why he never got married. And, and so Arthur, he worked four days a week at, at American Airlines, 10-hour ten, ten days. And then he had three days off, and he would come to the college, and he would do anything we needed done. I mean, he would clean a room. He would go to the airport, pick somebody up. It didn't matter. He just wanted to serve. Well, his boss came to him one day and said, your, your job is, um, is you're being replaced. You're in L.A. He said, the only way you can keep your position, keep your tenor, is to take a transfer to JFK in New York. Well, Arthur didn't want to go back to New York. His family was all lost, all Irish Catholic, and had basically disowned him when he got saved. And he thought, I don't, I don't want to end my career in New York, especially at JFK. But he thought, well, but I don't want to lose my, my tenure either. And he thought, maybe the Lord's taking me back there to win my family to Christ. So he took the job. And, and we, had, we had been kind of out of contact for a couple of years. He had been at the job the, the day before, had a heart attack, and was instantly in eternity. Dr. R was obviously a little bit um, choked up about it. He and Arthur were good friends. And uh, so I flew back to the college that, that afternoon. And my, my time with the tour group was done. A replacement came in. And, and I went back because I was going to do a preaching camp at the college that next week. So Monday morning, I'm sitting at my, at my office desk, and Pastor Chapel walked in. And Pastor Chapel doesn't walk into my office, hardly ever. In fact, my job is to keep him out of my office. That's why he hired me, <laughs> to take care of the college so he can do other things. So when he walks in my office, I'm not doing my job. So he's only been in my president's office once. And I think my previous office may be three times. So uh, uh, he walked in my office and he said, Brother Gatch, did you hear about Arthur? And I said, yeah, Dr. R called me yesterday. He sat down and he said, uh, I got a call from Arthur's sister this morning. And um, Arthur's will says that either you or me is to do the funeral. And he said, I can't do it. That was just kind of a roundabout way to say you're doing a funeral, right? <laughs> I said, well, Pastor, when is it? I have preaching camp this week. He said, I know. He said, they don't know for sure. They think it'll be Thursday morning. Here's a number for his sister. Call her in about an hour. So he gives me a piece of paper, and he walks out. I'm thinking, man, this is crazy. I got these kids coming in to learn preaching. Then I'm thinking, well, Thursday, we, we take them to Six Flags. We give them a kind of a a day off, and, and if so if it's Thursday, I, get, I guess maybe I could do it. So an hour later, I call Arthur's sister. She's not real happy to have my call. And I said, understand that uh, Arthur and his will asked for Pastor Chapel or myself to do the funeral. She said, yeah, but you don't have to. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't need you to come. Uh, we have three Catholic priests all lined up ready to do the funeral. I said, well, but Arthur asked for one of us. She said, yeah, but you don't have to come. I said, well, when is the funeral? She said, uh, Thursday at 9 a.m. I said, can you give me the name of the funeral home? She said, yes, here it is. And I said, I'll be there. So I flew a red eye Wednesday night out of L.A., got to JFK about 5 in the morning. I had, I had contacted a pastor that I'd never met in New York, and asked him if he'd pick me up at the airport and take me to this funeral home. I don't know where I'm going in New York. And so he, he agreed, and uh, he picked me up. 
We got to the we got to the funeral home at about 8:45. The funeral started at nine. It was a rainy, dreary day in New York. Typical funeral day, I guess. And and I walked in the funeral home, met the funeral director. He was very kind. He said, "Now, uh, the casket's up front. There's a little podium there next to the casket. The casket was open, and and there's a little podium there. And he said, uh, when everybody gets in, I'll give you a thumbs up. You go ahead. And when you're done, just give me the thumbs up, and I'll take it from there." So for the first time, I'm thinking, boy, this is this is going to be a challenge, you know, because I don't have anybody to sing, I don't have anybody to pray, I don't have anybody to do anything. I'm just kind of the whole show. <laughs> and Arthur's laying there in the casket, and it's Arthur, all right, you know, and uh, and I'm I'm kind of studying the situation, and his family start coming in, and so I'm saying good morning. Nobody shook my hand, just walked right past me. Nobody said anything, just kind of looked at me and walked past. Three Catholic priests walked in. I guess they figured if this guy keels over, it's yours. You know, I don't know. They walk in. And so his entire family's there. They're all Irish Catholic. They're they're all mad that I'm there. And the funeral director gives me a thumbs up. So I walk up, and I said, well, uh, you're probably all wondering what I'm doing here. And they're all sitting there with their arms full like this. I said, you know, Arthur and I, we really didn't have that much in common. I said, Arthur was a Yankees fan. And they're all like, that's right. And I said, I hate the Yankees. <laughs> I mean, they're coming out of their chairs. I said, Arthur, he loved motorcycles. In fact, he's got three of them in his garage right now, doesn't he? All Harleys. They're all like, yeah. I said, I've only been on a motorcycle once, and I fell off of it. And they all laughed. I said, Arthur was a food connoisseur. He loved to eat. In fact, Arthur could fly anywhere in the country for $30 with American Airlines. He would get off work sometimes at 5 at night, get on an airplane, fly to Dallas to eat at Three Forks Restaurant, one of the most famous steakhouses in the world, and eat a steak and fly back home. Did it many times. I said, Arthur was a food connoisseur. He loved to go out to fancy places and eat. I said, I eat at McDonald's, and they all laughed. I, I went through about seven or eight things, so we had nothing in common. And I got him laughing, and then I said, but we did have one thing in common, and that's why I'm here. We both had the same Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I preached the gospel. Well, they didn't want to hear that, of course. Funeral ended. He's getting buried out on Long Island. Arthur was in the military, so out to the, out to the military cemetery on Long Island, three-hour trip. And I got to ride with his mother and his sister, who were not only Roman Catholic, they were spiritists. They talked to the dead. It's a wonderful trip. <laughs> Six hours, nonstop, trying to convince me you could talk to people who are already dead. When it was all over, came back to the area where the church was, or where the yeah, where the funeral was, and they were going to have a meal for the family. And uh, they they said you can come in. I went in the restaurant. I had already arranged for the pastor to pick me up in, in about thirty minutes to take me back to the airport for a red eye home and. And uh, they said, you can come in. And, and uh, they had these round tables with six chairs at each table. And place that in. It's going to be a nice meal. And they, the, the sister, she said, your table's right there. My table was a round table with one chair at it and one place set in. I did get a free meal out of the deal as I ate here by myself. And when the pastor came, I, I left. Not one thank you, nothing. We drove back to the airport, and I was having a hard time staying awake. I thought, I'm going to miss this plane. I can't, I can't keep my eyes open. I'd been up all night, all day, under this you know, stress of preaching and stuff at the funeral. And, and now I'm just exhausted, and i got to get back. I thought, if I could just get on the plane, I could fall asleep. But i got to stay awake till the plane leaves. So I went to a little Hudson News there in JFK, and I was going to get a newspaper, maybe you know, look at the sports page or something to get my mind awake. I picked up a... Now, USA Today, and there were about five or six people in front of me. I'm standing in line to pay for my paper. I'm looking at it, and I sneeze. And a lady somewhere in that store said, God bless you. People say that. It's really dumb to say that. They used to say that during the bubonic plague. This is, this is the facts now. Right? I mean, this is actually true. The last thing you did before you died was you sneezed if you had the bubonic plague. And so people would say, God bless you. Because you so don't say, God bless me. If I sneeze, don't, don't say, God bless you. So, 
So she says, God bless you. Well, I turn to say thank, thank you. And I looked at this lady, and she looked at me, and we pointed at each other and said, I called her by name. She called me by name. I said, what, what, what are you doing here? She said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I, I, I just did a funeral. I, what, are you, what are you doing here? She said, Brother Gatch, I, I was in Korea visiting my family. And I got a call that my grandson, there's something wrong with his heart back in California, and they've got to do immediate surgery. He's only two, and I'm trying to get back. I said, oh, man, let's pray. We got on our knees there in that Hudson News, and I prayed for Brandon. When I got on that plane later, I thought, I didn't come to New York to do a funeral. I came to pray with a grandmother. You'll not always be as fruitful as you want to be, but you can be faithful. By the way, Brandon's a youth pastor today. I don't think anybody's going to be in heaven from that funeral. I hope, but I have little hope. I'm not sure they received the gospel at that funeral. I preached as best I knew how. I ministered as best I could without getting mad. But I don't, I don't know if there were any results there. But I know why I went to New York. Because God had an assignment to pray. Be faithful. Be faithful. Rejoice in your faithfulness rather than your fruitfulness. So some daily things we can do to help renew our strength in the Lord. And aren't you glad that when we do these things, God comes alongside and gives us a renewed energy spiritually to serve Him. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, for these folks that are here faithfully today. And I pray that you'd bless them and renew their strength for another week ahead of them. And Lord, each of us face different challenges and, and things in our life, but I pray that you would renew us for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Now see, you made me go over.